Well, good morning, everyone. I'm surprised people get up early on a Saturday morning to go to a conference on worship and prayer. Wow, congratulations. <laughs> it's good to be here. Um, I've been in this auditorium numerous occasions in the past when it was Christian Fellowship, and it's good to be back in familiar territory, so I'm glad that you all are here with us today. So just, I don't know how much Jeremy has told you about our plan for this morning, but uh, the first two sessions we're going to focus on worship, and then the third one on prayer, and then tomorrow morning again on prayer. So hope you'll be able to join us for as much of that as you are able to do so. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to read two short verses of Scripture, and then we're going to pray and get started. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I think you're probably familiar with them. If you follow along with me as I read. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, in order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that whereas once we were immersed in darkness, ignorance, blindness to the beauty of Jesus, you have, by your sovereign, merciful grace, called us into the experience of your marvelous light so that we can see truly and love you in the way that you created us to do. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes and our hearts to the truth of your word. Lord, I pray Psalm 119 verse 18 where the psalmist prayed, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. So Lord, that's what we ask for this morning. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, um, a book was published with an intriguing title. It was called, Why Does the World Exist? An Existential Detective Story. Now, I'm not going to go into the philosophical answers that this author tried to provide, but as I read that book, I realized I know why the world exists. The world exists for worship. Worship is the end for which God created the universe. We see it here in 1 Peter 2, and we're going to talk about that more in just a moment. Now, I know all of you have heard of Mark Twain. Mark Twain is known for many things, not for being a Christian, sadly, but he said some rather insightful things during the course of his life, one of which is this. He said, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. Well, I think all of us know the day we were born. Mine was February 6th. But it is far more important to know why. I know why I was born physically. I know why I was born again spiritually. I know why you were born. You were born, as Peter says, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into light. Now, don't confuse what you do with why you exist. So if somebody comes up to you and you've never met them and they say, well, what do you do? You immediately think they're asking you, how do you make a living? So you'll respond by saying, well, I'm a school teacher or I'm a housewife or I'm a carpenter or I'm a pastor or whatever. That's what you do. That's not why you exist. 
You exist for something far more glorious. You exist for worship. Now, right from the start, let's define our terms. What do I mean by worship? I know there are broad spectrum of beliefs about what is or is not legitimate worship. Here's my rather expanded definition. Worship begins in the mind. It begins with deep, profound truths, robust, expansive notions of who God is, His character, and what God does for us in Jesus. Anything that passes itself off as worship that is not based on the biblical revelation of who God is, is at best infatuation and at worst idolatry. Second, this understanding, this enlightenment of who God is that we get from Scripture inflames the heart. It awakens the affections of our spirit. Things like joy and gladness, delight, reverence, gratitude, admiration, love, fear, zeal, wonder, all the many expressions and the, the affections that rise up in our hearts. And these then in turn find expression in life, whether it's in singing or speaking or serving or sacrificing or celebrating the Lord's table or celebrating baptism. So worship begins in the mind when we are gripped, when we are enlightened with the reality of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. And that gives expression to an ignited, inflamed heart in which we then find satisfaction and joy and gratitude and gladness in all that God is. Now, if you think about that definition, there are three elements in it that I want to break down for us this morning in this first session. Apart from which, in my opinion, real worship cannot exist. So to say that worship begins in the mind, I use the word enlightenment. If you're not enlightened from reading Scripture as to who God is, you cannot properly worship. But this enlightenment, in turn, must produce what I call exaltation. Now, that's spelled with a U, E-X-U-L-T. Exaltation is delighting in, finding joy in someone. And that exaltation, in turn, leads to exaltation, spelled with an A. Enlightenment, exaltation, exaltation. And folks, they have to occur in that order. You cannot reverse them. You cannot delete any of them. So think with me for just a moment about what this means. You can't worship God until you are enlightened or educated as to who God is. There are people today in churches everywhere who think they're engaging in worship, and yet they're extolling a, a prefabricated notion of a God, and they're basically immersed in idolatry. So we must begin with enlightenment. But we can't stop there. Sadly, there are many who think that worship begins and ends with enlightenment. As long as I know things about God, as long as my doctrinal ducks are in a row, as long as I can out-argue somebody on any theological point, I have honored God. That's not worship. In fact, those kinds of people, and you probably know a few, are really quite unpleasant. They're devoid of joy. They're oftentimes very arrogant and argumentative. And they're deeply afraid of their own affections. And anything that might happen in the course of a worship service that tends to stir up their emotions, they'll suppress it because they're fearful of feeling anything. They think it's going to lead to a mushy mind. It means they're going to diminish doctrine. So again, some are afraid of enlightenment and dismiss it altogether. There are some, as I said, 
All they want is to be enlightened and educated, and they think that's the beginning and ending of worship. Others think, no, I don't want to think, I just want to feel. I just want the affections that arise, the spiritual euphoria that happens in the course of a time of singing. Both enlightenment and exaltation are essential to true worship. Jonathan Edwards, my theological hero, often said that for there to be heat in the heart, there must first be light in the mind. But enlightenment and exaltation are not enough. They must lead to exaltation. Again, let me make sure I'm defining my terms correctly. Enlightenment, education, understanding, that's where worship begins. That produces in us exaltation, delight, joy, gratitude, hope, fear, satisfaction, all that for all that God is for us in Jesus. But that in turn leads to the exaltation of God. Exalt means to extol, to lift up, to acknowledge, to praise, to declare how wonderful and glorious he really is. And exaltation happens when we exult in God as a result of being enlightened as to who he is. So what I'm saying is, is that God is most exalted in you when you most supremely exult in him and all that he is for you in Jesus. So if you want to praise God, find pleasure in God. God's greatest glory in you is found in your supreme gladness in him. And without those elements, I don't think real worship exists. I was reading the other day, I'm actually writing a book on worship right now, and uh, so I'm very animated about this subject. But um, I was reading the other day in one book, it's otherwise a pretty good book, and he defined worship in this way. He said, worship, quote, is the work of acknowledging the greatness of our covenant Lord. And I thought, well, yeah, okay, that's okay, but it's inadequate. I would say it's the work of acknowledging and rejoicing in the greatness of our covenant Lord. It's not enough simply to acknowledge if you don't find delight in the God whom you know. And I, want to, I want to read to you a quote, and you're going to have to bear with me because it was written by Jonathan Edwards back in the 18th century. His prose is a little wooden, so just but listen carefully. It probably has been the most impacting statement on my life outside of the Bible. Listen carefully to what Edwards said. He said, what is glorifying God if not rejoicing at the glory he has displayed? An understanding of the perfections of God only cannot be the end of creation, for he had as good not understand it as see it and not be at all moved with joy at the sight. Now listen to what he's saying. Merely understanding who God is, understanding that he's glorious, he's majestic, is not really of any benefit if it doesn't stir you and move you to rejoice and be moved with joy at the sight of it. He continues, neither can the highest end of creation be the declaring of God's glory to others, for the declaring God's glory is good for nothing otherwise than to raise joy in ourselves and in others at what is declared. So if if you think that as long as I understand it, as long as I declare it, I've done my duty. No, it's only to the degree that we find joy and delight and deep satisfaction in who God is and what he has done for us that we truly worship. So, 
What does it mean then to worship? It means that you declare to God, Lord, you are my greatest and my most supreme treasure. You are more precious to me than anything and everything this world can offer. It means that you, God, satisfy my soul in a way that nothing else in all of creation can. It means that you supply my soul with joy above any other experience or activity that I can engage. It means that it is in your presence and your presence alone not in illicit sex or alcohol or drugs or money or respect or power. It is in your presence that I find fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So again, worship happens anywhere and at any time that your mind is filled with robust thoughts and understanding. Your mind is enlightened about who God is and what he does which stirs up affections in your heart of gladness and satisfaction and peace and joy and hope, reverential fear, which in turn prompts you to extol God, to exalt Him in a variety of different ways. So again, never let worship stop with big ideas in your head. Neither let worship be only about feeling good. You know, it's interesting how people come to church And after a service, you ask somebody, well, what was the service like? And some people will say, well, it was great. Um, The preacher agreed with everything that I believe. (laughs) And others will say, well, it was great. Boy, I felt so elevated. My heart was lightened, and uh, I just experienced deep pleasure and euphoria. And both of them in in those responses can dishonor God. Because merely understanding Him or merely enjoying the, the moment does not exalt him. They have to be combined together. Again, the mistake is in thinking that worship is all about right theology or it's all about elevated feelings. Folks, it's about both. And the church of Jesus Christ has lost sight of this. Let me remind you of what I consider to be one of the most important and terrifying verses in the entire Bible. Came from the lips of Jesus in Matthew 15. He said this, speaking to the religious leaders, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Listen to that. He said, you hypocrites, you're devoted to, to honoring me with your lips. You say and sing all the right things. Your doctrine is in perfect alignment with Scripture but your heart is far from me. You're disengaged in the very depths of your soul, and therefore your worship is vain. So what makes worship honoring to the Lord? It is the engagement of the heart in response to the truth that God has revealed about himself. So true worship requires both exalted thoughts and passionate affections. And if you have one without the other, you're in real danger of worshiping in vain. I'm going to think about this for a moment. Countless Christians every single Sunday come to church who are passionate, they're deeply emotional, they're affectionate, they're energetic, they're excited, maybe tears flow, they might laugh with joy, now the music is loud, their hands are raised, and God is offended. Why? Because they're worshiping a God of their own making, a God that they didn't learn from Scripture, a God 
that does not align with their own preconceived notions. They come to a church because they, they love the euphoric feeling of the music. They love the community of people that surround them. But they have very little grasp of who it is they're actually celebrating. In fact, they might even be afraid of biblical truth. They might be the sort of individual who says, you know, too much thinking can quench the spirit. So let's just, you know, shut down the mind and just enjoy the moment. And there are just as many churches where people come in thinking in perfect harmony with the Word of God. I mean, their theology is spot-on accurate. They are not at all uh, inclined to any kind of uh, doctrinal deviation or heresy. They love the thrill of intellectual enlightenment. They wouldn't be caught dead entertaining the slightest heretical thought about God. They can quote Scripture to you. They can out-argue on any doctrine. And God is still offended. Why? Because their hearts are disengaged. That's why both the engagement of the heart and the enlightenment of the mind are absolutely essential. The point is, God is not honored by heartless orthodoxy, nor is he honored by joyful heresy. There must be both enlightenment in the mind, and there must be the ignited affections of the heart. Now, with all that being said, let's come back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's look at how Peter unpacks this. First thing you want to note here is who we were, and it's not a pretty picture. He says that we were in darkness. Do I have to say much about our world today? Immersed in darkness. People think they're enlightened. They think they understand what is good and true and right, and they are immersed in darkness. They're blind to the beauty of Christ. Apart from God's sovereign grace in our lives, we see nothing of value in Him. But God has transferred us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And this is more than just, oh, we didn't understand the gospel, we didn't understand the beauty of Christ before, but now we do. It is in, that is involved, but it's more than that. This, this light that he's talking about, I think, is a new sense, a new awareness of the excellency and the sweetness and the beauty of who Christ is. It's the difference, for example, um, if I had two people come up here and I had one individual, I said, would, would you break down for us the chemical constituents of honey? And he gave you a 15-minute lecture about what comprises honey. And you think, well, that's, that's interesting. And I had another person who came up here and I said, would you tell me what honey tastes like? And boy, they would go off on the sweetness and the joy and the satisfaction that it brings. There's a difference between simply knowing about honey and actually experiencing the sweetness and the excellency of its taste. And Peter is saying God saved us and brought us into the experience to taste his sweetness to our souls. Notice furthermore, he says that there was a time when we were not God's people, but we were made the recipients of divine mercy, and now we are owned by him. So what is our identity? Well, look at these things. Let me just quickly run through them. We are a chosen race. That means whether you're Jew or Gentile, Greek or Roman, whether you're from Russia or Zambia or Australia or the U.S., if you have faith in Christ, you are a new people, a new race. And this word race here has nothing to do with ethnicity because this race is comprised of every ethnicity. It has nothing to do with skin color. It has nothing to do with nation of origin. Notice secondly, he says we are a royal priesthood. All of us, it, it frustrates me to no end when I find churches 
who think that the only people who have access to God are the ones who stand on a platform or speak from a microphone or wear a clerical collar or who have graduated from seminary or they hold an office in the church. Every one of you as a believer priest is designed by God to worship him in a way that will honor him. Notice thirdly, he says, we are a holy nation. Sorry to burst your bubble, he's not talking about America. I'm as patriotic as they come, believe me. But he's not talking about any geopolitical entity on the earth. He's talking about the church. The church is the only nation with whom God is in covenant relationship. I love deeply America, but my first and my highest loyalty is to the body of Christ, regardless of their citizenship of any national entity. And then notice finally, we are a, possess- a people for his own possession. Now, we see who we are, we see how we got there, but why? What was God's purpose in all of this? In order that we might proclaim his excellencies. His excellencies, a reference to his attributes, what he's like, his character, his actions. I, I, like, to, I like to subsume it under one word, beauty. I mean, how many times have you, have you thought of God as the height, the consummation of beauty? Not just representational beauty, but beauty in terms of his moral character. I mean, think, think about how certain things that in our experience are, are kind of mutually exclusive are perfectly harmonized in God. God is both tender-hearted and firm. I don't know many people that I find who are really tender-hearted that are also firm when they need to be. And people that are firm are usually hard-shelled and difficult to embrace. God is both good and great. How many times do you see both of those attributes in a human? He's both forgiving and just. Most people are either sloppy in their forgiveness or they're so rigid in their justice that you just don't see both. God is both humble and exalted. He's both transcendent and eminent. He's both gracious and holy, powerful and self-sacrificial, both loving and severe, both kind and royal. He's a compassionate father, but he's also a conquering king. These are the excellencies of God. And by his actions, I mean all that he does for us in Jesus. So when Peter says that you have been created for this ultimate purpose to proclaim his excellencies, he means things like this, proclaim the excellency of his power and having lifted you out of the pit of sin and made you a child of God. Proclaim the excellency of his redemptive purpose in Jesus in making provision for you to be ransomed from the guilt and condemnation of sin. Praise him for the excellency of the self-emptying of God the Son who took upon himself human nature and lived a life as a slave, eventually dying on the cross. Proclaim the excellency of his immeasurable strength in raising Jesus from the dead and then imparting the Holy Spirit to you, the same spirit by which he was raised now lives in you. Proclaim the excellency of his wisdom, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, of making a way for the righteous to die in the place of the unrighteous to bring us to God. Praise the excellency of his omnipresence to know that there's no place you can go at any time in your life where God is not immediately present to you and with you. Praise the excellency of his triunity, the great mystery of all mysteries, that this one God subsists in three co-equal persons. Praise the excellency of his eternal purpose that will be consummated when Christ returns and puts everything to rights. To proclaim his excellencies. Folks, that 
is not only why you were born physically, that's why you were born again spiritually, to worship God. Now, I want to say a few words in the remaining time for this first session about how not to insult God when you worship Him. Now, that may sound strange. Worshiping means to honor. How, how can you say I can insult God when my aim is to honor Him? Well, I'm going to tell you. We uh, have for several years sung a particular song at Bridgeway, maybe you all have sung it here, written by Matt Redmond called Here For You. You familiar with the song? If you're not, you should. It's beautiful. The opening lines say this, let our praise be your welcome, let our songs be a sign, we are here for you, we are here for you. Let your breath come from heaven, fill our hearts with your life, we are here for you, we are here for you. Now, I often tell our people at Bridgeway that little words can mean a lot. You know that the tiniest of words literally make the difference between heaven and hell, between life and death. And one of them is right here. It's that little word for, F-O-R. So imagine for just a moment, you walk into a Sunday service or you come to a meeting like this or you go to a small group. And you think to yourself, I'm here for God. What do you mean by that? What, what does the word for mean? Let me give you an illustration. Let's say there's somebody in your church body who is weak and sick and uh, they're just unable to do anything for themselves. And their house is just a mess. The yard is overgrown. The garage is, a, is just a disaster. So you and several people go over there on a Saturday and you spend the entire day cleaning the house, washing the dishes, doing the laundry, fixing up the garage, mowing the grass. And this person says, why are you here? And you say, well, we're here for you. And by that, you mean we're here to do for you what you can't do for yourself. You're too weak. You're too sick. You need somebody to help you. You're needy. You're dependent. You're desperate. And we're here to supply you with what you otherwise can't do on your own. Do you come to church or gather in a worship service thinking that that's why you're there? That you're there for God, to do for Him, to supply Him with what He lacks? Maybe He's got some deficiencies and you're there to provide and kind of bolster Him and boost His spirit because everything in the world seems to be going haywire. If you do, you're insulting Him. Let me remind you of what Paul said in Acts chapter 17. Remember his speech on Mars Hill? By the way, if you've ever go to Greece, make sure you get to Athens and you go to Mars Hill. Um, I've been there once. It's an incredible experience. But he said this to the Athenian philosophers. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Why? Because he, gives, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, I hate to break the news to you folks. God doesn't need you. We need Him. He is altogether self-sufficient. He's dependent on no one. Paul says it clearly. We can't serve Him as if we're supplying something He lacks. I mean, after all, God is the one who created. He called everything into existence out of nothing. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So you can't come to church for God as if you're going to supply him with something that he otherwise doesn't have. To do so, to treat God as if somehow he's needy or he's exhausted or he's worn out 
or he lacks something that only you and I can supply, is to insult him. Now, come back to my illustration. Let's say after that long day of work and 100 degree temperature, which Columbia I'm sure experiences and will in a few weeks, um, you're standing outside and you're desperately thirsty. And suddenly this truck comes down the street handing out free bottles of ice cold water. And you come over to the guy who's driving the truck and they say, hey, we're here for you. And the, and the guy says, what? I don't need you. I said, no, no, we're here for what you can give us. And he supplies you with thirst quenching water. Or an even better illustration. I don't think, I don't know if this happens anymore. It did when I was growing up. You'd hear the ringing bell of the truck and it's the ice cream guy coming by. Now with Brahms everywhere and whatever else, we don't do that. But you run out and, and you say to the guy, hey, we're here for the ice cream. He says, well, the ice cream doesn't need you. No, no, no. We're here for what it can do for us. We want to enjoy its flavor. We want the satisfaction of the coolness of ice cream. If you, when you come to worship, you come to get what God gives. You don't come to give what you think he needs. If you come for God in the sense of we're here to serve you, we're here to supply you, we're here to bolster your sagging spirits, Lord. And I know you never think graphically like that, but sometimes that, that's precisely the way that we come into a church service. As over against, Lord, I'm here for you. I need you. I'm desperate for you. I'm as needy of you as I am for water after a hard day of work. I'm desperate for you as I am for that ice cream. I'm needy. I'm broken. I'm dependent. I need you. That's how you honor God. So, hypothetical conversation. Uh, Sunday morning. Tomorrow morning, I, I, I'm, I greet you at the door. I won't, but let's just suppose I did. <laughs> and I ask you, excuse me, uh, why are you here today? And you say, well, I'm here to give God glory. And I say, oh my, poor chap, I didn't know he was lacking in it. <laughs> and you say, well, wait a minute. I mean, worship is all about glorifying God, isn't it? I say, well, of course it is. But it's not that you, helpless, weak, broken sinner, can give God glory as if somehow you can add to the, the abundance and the infinite wealth that God already has as God. And you say, okay, what do you mean then when you, we glorify God? I said, you glorify God not by giving him something that you think he lacks, but by receiving from him everything that you lack. You come dependent and needy and thirsty and helpless and broken and you cry out to him to fill you. That is how you glorify God. Now, by the way, that's also how you insult him. So be very careful that you don't come for God as if somehow he is needful of you. One final comment, and then we'll stop. What this all means is that worship is altogether unique in the ministries of the church of Christ. It's unlike everything else that you do. It's unlike studying the Bible. It's unlike prayer. It's unlike evangelism. It's unlike fellowship. It's unlike small group gatherings. Worshiping God is altogether unique in this sense. It is an end in itself. You don't worship in order that you might gain something greater than the experience of God. Everything else you do, why do you study the Bible? It's in order that you might be educated and enlightened 
and so that you can know who God is better. There's always a so that in your study of the Bible. Why do you share your faith with unbelievers? So that they might be converted. But why do you want them converted? It's so that they might worship. Why do you gather and encourage one another in, in local communities and small groups? It's so that you might be built up in unity one with another. Everything that we do has a so that. You exercise spiritual gifts so that others will be edified. But you can't put a so that on worship. You worship God, and that is the end in itself. That's, that's the end for which every other so that exists. Everything else you do as a church body, including gathering here on a Saturday morning, is so that you might more effectively honor God in your worship, your adoration, your love, your joy, your reverence, your trust, and finding in Him complete and absolute satisfaction. I know people say, all right, Sam, but with what ultimate goal in view do you ascribe glory and honor and praise to God? None. That is the goal. That's the reason for which we exist. But Sam, what do you hope to accomplish by means of enjoying the majesty and the perfections and the goodness of God? Nothing. Worship is not a means to accomplish a higher end. Worship is itself the end that is accomplished by all other means. Worship is not simply one part of the existence of Trinity Fellowship. It is the point of the existence of Christian fellowship. Every sermon you hear, every prayer that is prayed, every word of encouragement to others, all of it is designed to better equip the people of this local church and this community to worship God in a way that truly honors Him. So what is worship? It's very fundamental in this first session. The mind is enlightened with truth about God. And if you're afraid of truth, if you're scared or, or put off by complex doctrines, you, you just need to get over it. I'm really, being really pastoral with you right now, aren't I? Because if, if you don't understand who God is, if you don't dig deeply into His Word, that's, the, that's the, the, the seedbed of heresy, folks. That's where false concepts of who God is emerge. It's out of ignorance of the Word of God. But don't ever stop there. Don't ever pat yourself on the back thinking, I've arrived, I've honored God because I understand all the deep, complex truths that Jeremy preaches about on Sunday morning. No, those truths are designed to light a fire in the depths of your inner being, to ignite deep, satisfaction, joy, peace, gladness, rest, fear, hope, gratitude, zeal, all those holy affections that the Word of God talks about, all of which in turn leads you to exalt God, to extol Him, to hold Him up as high and as glorious and as the only all-sufficient one who can do for your soul what no one else can do. That's worship. Let's pray. Well, Father, I thank you, Lord, that, um, that you are here for us, not to get from us what you lack, not so that we can mend up any wounds in your being or, or provide you with the therapy that your burdened soul needs. You are here for us to give, to supply us with all that our souls so desperately long for. You are here to supply us so graciously and in abundance 
through the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit, what we most desperately need. So Lord, help us to honor you by receiving. And when we serve, as Peter says in 1 Peter 4, we serve in the strength that you supply. So Father, I pray that our minds would be transformed, our hearts would be inflamed, our mouths would be filled with loud proclamations of your greatness and your goodness. And in everything that we do and say, however we posture ourselves before you, you would be exalted, extolled, magnified, glorified, seen as great and majestic, and the only one who can do for us what we so desperately need to be done. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.